works that other people have done and, and trying to help us understand. And then sometimes it'll be my own words or I'll rework it um, my, and put it in my own words. But I include the bibliography every once in a while just to know that these are the sources that I, I pull from. So tonight, with I want to draw special attention to an article. It would be, let's see, this is page, I don't know what page this is, four, five, six, I guess it is. It's not numbered. Page six, it would be the next to last page. At the very bottom, you'll see an article by Clay Trumbull. Uh, I'm going to use that article on the second half of tonight. So that's, I wanted to put that, uh, that's the reason I included the bibliography tonight, because I added that one to it. Uh, another thing that I've also added uh, is on the, our little Kings timeline here on page four, is a list of the kings of Israel with approximate dates of their reign. And again, that's going to be close. Um, and then uh, the, the reigns of both the kings of the north in Israel and the kings of Judah. That starts at Rehoboam in Judah, who is the son of Solomon. That's when the kingdom split, and so I put him over there. And then in the middle, we've got the prophets and where they go. And so we've put, I put Amos in for last week. We talked about Amos and then put Jonah in this week, who was a prophet to the northern kingdom and also to Assyria. So I've got that kind of notated there. And that's about the years where they reigned. At least those are the kings that they prophesied to. So just draw your attention to that. The prophet will be there every week, week in and week out. And then we've obviously got the verse packet, and then we'll get started with our material tonight. Now, um, I want to just briefly review kind of what we talked about last time. Remember, if, you, if you've seen that prophet's list on the back there, uh, Jonah and Amos are in, probably, at least, in the timeline of uh, Jeroboam and Uzziah. So Jeroboam 2 and Uzziah. Uh, Jeroboam is, is the king of the north, and Uzziah is the king of the south. Now, when Jeroboam 2 comes, comes to the throne, um, Israel in the north is blessed by the Lord. And they're able to regain a lot of the territories that they had lost before under previous kings. So God has sort of turned uh, His blessing to, to Israel um, really through no fault of their own. Uh, they did nothing to deserve it. Uh, Sean, do you have a question? Oh, he was a prophet to the north, and then also he was a prophet to Assyria. Yeah, um, good question. So, uh, but anyway, uh, so Jeroboam was, was really pretty wicked, but in spite of that, God turned his favor and blessing to the, the, the north because if he didn't, the north would have died completely. Uh, he basically stripped it to its, its bones. They still weren't really repentant, and yet he turned to bless them just because of, of that, really. So it was no fault of their own, but they were able to get areas of Damascus back under their control, and they were able to get places in the Transjordan, which is just to the east of the Jordan River, on, along down, the, the, down uh, the various tribes that they, uh, of territories that they had owned out there. Jonah was a prophet to the northern kingdom. So he went and spoke to Jeroboam the second and told him as much. Told him, look, the Lord's going to bless you. It's not because of anything you've done. In fact, you're a pretty worthless guy. He didn't say it exactly like that, but you get the idea. In spite of that, look, the Lord's going to bless you because if he didn't, you would just vanish from the face of the earth. And he's not going to do that because he remembers um, the covenant that he made with Abraham. And so he's not going to do that. So Jonah, that's important for our study tonight, is that Jonah was there on the scene. And we're going to talk more about that in just a second. But last week, what we talked about, for the most part, was Amos. Amos is the other prophet, a contemporary of Jonah, who prophesied to the kingdom of the north. He was actually from the south, and he was a shepherd and a fig tree farmer. But the Lord called him to prophesy to the north, so he crosses the border and begins to prophesy to the north, and prophesied during the reigns of Uzziah and Jeroboam too. And Amos, you'll remember, calls Israel's leadership to task and, bring, and calls them to repentance because of their, their terrible treatment of the poor. They sold the poor into slavery when they couldn't pay their debts. And not just any kind of slavery, we're talking hor as if slavery isn't horrific in and of itself, 
but sex slavery and all kinds of other wicked, wicked deeds that they did to the poor. And so Amos preaches primarily about that. He also prophesies condemnation about all the areas around Israel too, but the vast majority of his book is about the kingdom of the north. And he, he makes the case, look, unlike the Canaanite deities who don't really care whether you are you know, good to your neighbor as long as you worship them, God is not like that. He's not like the Canaanite deities. You don't only, you're not only called to worship Him in truth, but you have to respond a certain way to your neighbors on the outside. It, that actually matters how you treat other people. And so Amos bring, calls them to task and, and calls judgment on them. But in spite of all that, look, Amos at the very end turns to hope. He says, hey, the Lord will restore the tent of David one day. And that day that he points to at the end of Amos is quoted in Acts 15 as being fulfilled when the church begins to see Gentiles coming to repentance in Acts 15. James, who is over the church of Jerusalem, says, you know, well, what, you know, they have this council of Jerusalem in Acts 15. They're like, well, what do we do with these Gentiles? Or, you know, some of them are, you know, they, surely they got to become Jews first before they become Christians, don't they? And they have this council, and Paul says, look, guys, I was there. I saw the Spirit fall on these people. It's clear that God is moving among the Gentiles. And so James says, hey, look, this is prophesied about in the book of Amos. So it looks like it's coming to fruition, that he would restore the tent of David. And so we're seeing that in, in the church, he points out. All right, so tonight we're going to talk about Jonah, and we're going to do it in a little bit different way. Not really going to spend so much time in the book of Jonah per se, mainly because I think on the whole, Jonah is one of the Old Testament prophecies that you're probably relatively familiar with. Um, but what we're going to spend a lot of time doing is asking the question, is he a real guy? Is he re like, when we read the story of Jonah, is it true? In other words, if you're at work, and you're around some of your coworkers that might be unbelieving, or maybe you're uh, at ver wherever you are, various places that you might be, and, and you encounter people that are um, questioning the Bible. One of the things that might come up from time to time, because there's such general familiarity with the story of Jonah, is do you really believe that there was a guy named Jonah who was swallowed by a fish, spit up on dry land after three days, went into a town called Nineveh, preached a message there very briefly, and then went up on a Do you really believe that this happened? And so we need to figure out, as Christians, what do we actually think about the book of Jonah and the person Jonah? Do we believe that this actually happened, and what kind of credibility is there to this story? So I want to take this in two little kind of angles, two, uh, two angles. One is the historical Jonah, the actual guy. I, is he a real guy? And then the other is, what sort of sense from archaeology do we get that the story of Jonah might actually be true? And so I kind of want to look at those, and I think some of this might be interesting. I hope you'll find it interesting anyway. Um, so first I want to start with the historical Jonah. Now, we have reason to believe that Jonah was an actual man who was a prophet from the region of Galilee. In fact, he was the only prophet on record from the region of Galilee. Well, that is until one notable prophet came much later from the region of Galilee. Um, that was Jesus. Y'all didn't connect those dots. Um, we are told that he was a prophet to Jeroboam too that he, he was a prophet to the king of Israel, and he gave a, really, actually, a word of encouragement to him in spite of his own wickedness. He gave him a word of encouragement. I want you to see that in 2 Kings 14, 25-27, before we talk about its importance. He restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet who was from Gath-Hefer show you where that is in a second. For the Lord saw the affliction of Israel was very bitter, 
from the, uh, for there was none left, bond or free, and there was none to help Israel. But the Lord had not said that He would blot out the name of Israel under heaven, so He saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. So, basically, Jonah comes and tells him, look, the Lord's not going to blot you out. He, he's not said He's going to blot, blot you out, so in order to save you, uh, by the skin of your teeth, he's going to, right at the last minute, when there's nobody left to defend you, he's going to defend you so that you know it was him. And so, th- this is really important. Because Jonah is now not only put in a book called Jonah, where he's swallowed by a big fish, he's also put in a context, in a historical setting. He's put in a place and time He's verified by an author who's writing a very historical book. That's important because when we get to the prophecy of Jonah, a lot of people don't know how to take that prophecy. Do we understand it as a parable? Is this supposed to be a parable? Like, I don't know, like Jesus would tell the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, or like he would tell the parable of the Good Samaritan or something like that? Is that what Jonah is? Well, We'll put that on pause for just a second. We have him in a historical book where the author is going through the history of Israel king by king, and there in the midst of there is Jonah, son of Amittai. That's helpful because now we know the years that he prophesied and the location that he prophesied. That's incredibly helpful for what we'll talk about in just a minute. So historically, he was in a place and time. That is helpful. Now, Gath Heifer. I know you're wondering, where is that? And so I'm going to show you real quick on a map, uh, so you're not scared of the cities here. There's the Sea of Galilee, right there. Gath Heifer is right there in the territory of Zebulun. I know you're able, all able to pick that one out on a map, Zebulun. But there it is, Gath Heifer, right there, circled in red. And if we're talking about the story of Jonah, here is just a, a map of possible the possible route for Jonah, all right? The possible route. We're not told all of this part here. That's just the most likely landfall, maybe. Um, at least the, the typical path to get to Nineveh. Uh, Joppa is the reason I put this map up here. Joppa is down here. So he is called from Gath Heifer somewhere in this region. He's called to go to Nineveh. Let me get my laser, my laser pointer pooped out on me here. Um, called to Nineveh, way up here. And where does he go? Joppa, which is way down there. thing we also know about Joppa is it was the location of uh, the the Navy. So lots of ships sailing out of Joppa. So Jonah goes down there not to get to Nineveh, all right, not to get to Nineveh, to go exactly the opposite direction of Nineveh, in a place that would be able to take him to an even even further destination. Where he hoped to go, well, who knows. But uh, down there, Joppa, Tarshish area. All right. So, um, in all likelihood, the campaign that Jonah is prophesying to, to the king of the north, is somewhere around 773. So that's about the time where Jonah comes on the scene in 2 Kings, and he tells the king, look, this is the situation you're going to win, and God's going to save you. Okay, now if that's the case, in all likelihood, the book of Jonah would be placed after that. Okay, what is the likelihood? Jonah goes off to Nineveh, prophesies there, becomes a laughingstock in Israel, and comes back and has a stable prophetic ministry there in Israel. It's probably not great. So Typically, we consider the book of Jonah to be after that. That's also really important, all right? So it's probably somewhere around 773 that he begins to make this prophecy. So that would put him somewhere, at least in the north, prophesying somewhere in the neighborhood of 775 to 773, all right, in that area. All right, so now we've got Jonah, the real man, put in a place in time in somewhere around 773 when he begins some sort of a prophetic ministry there in the north, or at least that's when he's written about. Now, why is that important? Well, Assyria is where he's going to eventually go, right? He's going to eventually work his way to the town of Nineveh. So it 
it really raises the question, what's happening in Assyria at this time? All right? Well, Assyria is sort of in a dismal state of affairs. They are um, sometime between 810 and 783. They had some success, and about 783, they start on the decline. Again, this is really important for the book of Jonah, but they begin on the decline. And what happens is several areas or territories around Assyria start attacking Assyria. Now, Assyria, we're going to see, is a dominant nation that's actually going to move into the northern kingdom and they're going to haul a lot of the Jews off into captivity. Do you remember the year that that happens? Pop quiz. I've put it up there several weeks in a row. Do you know? What is it? Say it loud or it doesn't count. 722. That's right. There you go. 722. All right. Assyria comes in and destroys the northern kingdom and takes them off into captivity. We're not to 772 yet, obviously. So we have to understand that Assyria is not dominant until about the 740s. And so in this period, between 7803 or so, and all the way up to about 745 or so, is, uh, Assyria is in this really defensive position, and they're very weak. Okay, that's, it. that's important. They're in a defensive position, and they're weak. They've also, um, this, also, this weakness has allowed Jeroboam II and Uzziah in the south, in the southern kingdom, to regain some of their territories. That's a big deal. Because of the weakness of Assyria, uh, and because of the, the weakness of the Arameans, Israel is able to go back and reclaim some of their territories. So Jonah is able to come in and prophesy that God is going gonna, is gonna to save them, and the way he does that is by weakening a lot of the power structures around Israel, All right, which is always the case. Anytime those power structures go, somebody's going to be vying for position, and Israel's able to regain some of their territories. Now, Assyria experiences unparalleled turmoil following uh, the, the, the reign of Adad uh, Narari III. So they have this unparalleled turmoil between the years of 772 and 755. All right. I want you to think about just for a second. Why is that important? Jonah goes into Assyria, to its capital city, to Nineveh. And he says to them, what? What does he say? Do you remember? He repent. Why? He, do he doesn't actually say the word repent. He says something else. Yet, 40 days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Is it believable? Is it believable? Is Assyria in a position where they believe that they will be overthrown? Yes. Why? Because every territory around them is beginning to rebel. Adad Nirari III was on the throne before them, Asher and he was dominant. Assyria was powerful under him. He dies, Asherdan takes the throne, and what happens to him? All the territories around him begin to rebel. Assyria is in a state of turmoil. Everybody's fighting against Assyria. There is threat that any one of these nations around Assyria is going to overthrow them. Here comes a prophet out of nowhere saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. So if you were asking the question, is Jonah a real guy? Well, we have a historical book that says he was on the scene and says this was the year he was on the scene. He actually prophesied in a time period when it is believable for him to walk into a previously powerful nation and an afterward powerful nation. 
He walked into a nation in the perfect window where they were on the verge of collapse, and he said, 40 days and you're going to be overthrown. So historically, he was a real guy. That much is clear. Historically, it's believable. I mean, he walks in 40 years later during the reign of Tiglath-Pileser. Not believable. You don't walk into Assyria when they're at their most powerful state and say, 40 days Nineveh is going to be overthrown and they're all going to repent? They're all going to believe you? Not likely. Sometime before? Not likely. The window that Jonah was actually on the scene? Yeah. Actually really, really likely. Now, that's important. But it's not as important as what comes next. In the New Testament, Jonah is mentioned. Do you know who Jonah is mentioned by? Jesus. And do you know what Jesus says about Jonah? Jesus, by the way, doesn't say, hey, Jonah was a real guy, by the way. He really got swallowed by a fish. He really preached. He doesn't say that. He criticizes the Pharisees. Let's look at it. Matthew 12, 39 to 41. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of, a, of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Look at what Jesus does to Jonah. He actually verifies that there were men in Nineveh just as real as the men he's preaching to. And guess what's going to happen? They are going to rise up in judgment over you because they repented when Jonah preached. So what is Jesus doing? He's validating for us, this happened. This was a historical thing that took place. I like to bring things back to Jesus. All right? And there's, there's really one big reason why. Jesus is the apologetical linchpin, all right? The center of it all. If Jesus didn't raise from the dead, it is a waste of breath to argue anything else in the Bible. It doesn't matter. If when you die, as Paul says, you're still in your sins, if when you die, you're worm food because Jesus didn't really raise from the dead, none of it matters. All right. The question that you're you know, atheist friend, or, or more likely what you find is, is really people in Alabama typically, or people in the South normally, are, de are de-churched. They grew up in church. Nobody ever took their questions seriously if they had them, or they didn't feel like it was a place where they could actually ask questions. And so as they age, as they got older, they're dealing with these questions that, they, that they've never bothered to ask anybody, or they don't feel like the church actually has good answers to. And so they leave. And most of the people that you encounter that are not believing are people that used to go to church and no longer go to church. And they have questions that they're wrestling with that they just don't have, they don't think there are answers to. And so when it comes to things like this with Jonah, they're really asking the question, is he, is he a real guy? Did he, did he really live? Well, let's bring it back to Jesus. Did Jesus raise from the dead? Was he a real guy? Did he rise from the dead? Well, we have more uh, evidence for Jesus' resurrection than for literally anything else in the Bible. I actually have more evidence for Jesus' resurrection probably than George Washington existed, right? So, uh, thank you, Josiah. <laughs> now, we, we have more evidence for Jesus' resurrection than a, a lot of other things. We have, uh, obviously, a massive book that testifies to it, uh, written by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. And not only did they do this, but they also suffered for what they witnessed themselves. Not what they were told about, what they actually witnessed. 
they suffered for and died. It's difficult, I would say, nigh impossible to find a person who would die for something that they're lying about. These men, 500 of them, Paul tells us, saw the resurrected Christ, testified to his resurrection, and then suffered and died for what they say they believe. We have more evidence for Jesus' resurrection than just about anything else. It's laughable to argue that we don't. So when we take things back to Jesus' resurrection, the linchpin of apologetics, if he rose from the dead, what does that then say about the world you live in? We're used to this world, I think. You know, we went to the Smoky Mountains not that long ago, and we're on the edge of the balcony of our little, we rent a little house out there in the woods, you know, you can rent those little cabins and things like that, and we're standing on this balcony, you know, drinking our coffee in the morning, and we see a mama black bear and her two black baby cubs, you know, walking, meandering through the woods and things like that. And I, just, just think about that for just a second. Here's an animal that protects its young. You, would you walk upon a mother bear with her two, two cubs? Would you get close? Probably not. Black, black bear will, are normally pretty skittish, but walk upon a mama with her two baby cubs, and she's not. She, she protects them. She feeds them. She knows how to feed herself. She knows how to scavenge the woods. She can, I mean, when you look at them, they're, they're, they function. They're, they'll, they'll live to a great old age. This is a, a creature here that just, that knows how to take care of itself. It's amazing. You know what it doesn't do? It doesn't build telescopes and look at the stars. It doesn't form governments, vote for presidents. It doesn't go to church. It doesn't do any of that. It doesn't think about its own existence at all. It doesn't wonder where it came from. Anytime you read the Old Testament and it's giving an apologetic for God, the author tells you, just look around you. Are you kidding me? Look at the stars. Are you really telling me there is no God? You can't be serious. This, this really took place. What, what I'm saying is we live in a world that is fantastic. It's unbelievable. We have trees all around us that provide us the air we breathe, and then what we breathe out, they take in and we have an ecosystem that provides for both animals and man seven billion people around the earth the, the world you live in is fantastic but you're used to it so when you see a bear in the woods you think well it's just a bear it's not just a bear well or you may run i don't know <laughs> yeah. hopefully you see him from a distance or way up high like we were but the point is, you see this and you think, oh, it's, it's normal. It's just, it, look at the bear. Oh, look at the bear. That's amazing that this bear can take care of itself, and God has put in it that. And then he's made you completely different than that and given you charge over the earth to, to take care of even them. You live in a fantastic world, but you know what has never happened as much as you look at bears and things like that? Everybody died. Death is batting a thousand. Everyone dies. How many people do you know got up from the grave? Just one. So 2,000 years ago, here's a guy who's reporting that he is the Son of God, that he's sent from God, and he says, by the way, they're going to kill me, and three days later I'm going to rise from the dead. Well, that's pretty fantastic. And then he does it. It's reported by 500 people, recorded in Scripture. They die for that report, by the way. That changes the landscape even of the fantastic world we live in. The world we live in is even more fantastic than I thought it was because now people can actually rise from the dead. And if that guy who rose from the dead, said 
anything, you should believe it. It doesn't matter how fantastic his report is. He rose from the dead. So anything he says, I believe it. Now, if he puts credibility in the historicity of Jonah, don't we have reason to believe that Jonah was actually living? Further, if he got it from the dead, what's somebody sitting in the belly of a fish? That's minuscule by comparison. All right. By the way, somebody did get swallowed by a fish the other day. Did you see that? And spit out? <laughs> I was like, wow, well, there you go. Got swallowed by a fish. Uh, well, we can talk about that later. Right, that's exactly right. Yeah, good call. Okay, so we've got a historical Jonah. All right, we're, we're pretty sure the testimony of Scripture, at least that he existed, was true. Now, when we talk about the archaeology, we don't have a little stone column in Nineveh that's got like a picture of a guy getting spit out by a fish that says Jonah was here. That would be really nice, right? We don't have that, okay? So, spoiler alert, I'm not going there, all right? However, we do have some Assyrian stuff that is pretty interesting and might give us further reason to believe that a guy being swallowed by a fish and spit out on dry land might have an actual purpose in God's plan to redeem some people in Nineveh. All right? There's an ancient story, ancient, we call it a myth, it's a religious story that is told in Babylon, Assyria, lots of areas along the Fertile Crescent. We found evidence of this as far as Canaan, the land where Israel is, that there was a divinity, a divine creature, who was part man, part fish. And we have actually found, I say we like I was there, you understand I mean, I mean, I'm including my brethren overseas that are, that are doing archaeology. Uh, we have found images of this fish god guarding temples in the ruins of Nineveh. All right? Uh, part man, part fish. I want to show you a picture, if you've got that, those two blanks in there, part man, part fish. So, the left is a sort of like an artist rendering, I guess, sort of, of the part man, part, part fish. He's wearing a fish. So he, he's depicted in a number of different ways. This is one way he's depicted, having a fish on his head. He's, you'll also see him uh, curved like this, having, looking like a mer, mermaid, merman, I guess you would say, with the bottom half uh, like a fish tail, and the upper half is a man, and then have like a fish head on top. You'll see him pictured like that too. Um, so you'll see them a, a number of different ways. And then this right here is a stone column from a temple in Nineveh where he's carved on there, uh, part man, part fish. We, there's some debate about what he's actually referred to, what his name is in uh, history and historical literature, and sometimes translations can be difficult. But uh, we think his name is Oannes. Um, and this Oannes you can find in a number of different places in a number of different languages and different translations of Oannes. Um, where Oannes actually gets a lot of uh, credibility and, a lot, and we, where we get a lot of help in understanding more about this creature um, is from an ancient Babylonian historian. You think historians aren't important? They're really important. They're very important. Because this ancient Babylonian historian actually wrote in like the 4th century B.C. And so that's crazy early, right? He, um, his name is Barossus, and he's a Babylonian historian, 4th century B.C. And he tells that about the origin of the worship of this part man, part fish, god-like creature. His origin is that he came up out of the sea. 
and he would he came to Babylon and to the Akkadian settlements along the Fertile Crescent, and he gave them insight into things like letters and sciences and mathematics, building, construction. Essentially what they say is that there was nothing that he uh, that we have that he didn't teach us how to build tools and things like this. This narrative is baked into the culture of Babylon, Assyria, and a lot of these um, places. Now, the narrative goes a little bit further and says that when the sun set, he would go back into the ocean because he was an amphibian, and he would come back from time to time and he was understood to be, and he would, he would come back in different people and in different uh, time periods and would give further instruction to their culture. And uh, he would bear different names, but they saw him as a supernatural messenger. So in other words, prophets would come bearing his image and preach and would tell them what to do. Now, Jonah is not Oannes. That's true. But, is it possible? I think it is possible that God used a cultural medium to come to them and speak not as Oannes, but as a divinely appointed messenger that tells them to repent and believe. Jonah didn't say, at least we don't have the record of those words exactly. In fact, Jonah walked into Nineveh, and he said, yet 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. That's the only thing we have him recorded as saying. And people read that and go, surely it was a longer message. Surely it was much longer. Surely it was, all right, let me tell you, all the things you need to know. But what if it wasn't? Is it possible that here's a man who in his rebellion thinks he's going to run from God and thwart the plans of God to go in and preach repentance to the people of Nineveh? And he does so by running. And then he thinks, when he's on the ship, go back and read the book of Jonah. When he's on the ship, he doesn't tell them to throw him overboard to save his own life. He's doing it to commit suicide. So they throw him overboard, thinking this is death. He gets swallowed by the fish. Now he thinks he's really dead. But once he, real, once he realizes what death is like, he's starting to rethink the whole plan, right? And he says, please, please forgive me. God spits him back out on dry land, and is it possible that in God's sovereignty, this was all actually part of the strategy to preach repentance to the nation of Nineveh, or the, the nation of Assyria, to the town of Nineveh, to repent? Yes. Yes, yes. That is true. That is true. Yeah, so um, he spit, spits him back out on dry land and says, go to the town of Nineveh and tell them what I'm going to tell you to tell them. So he goes. So um, it's possible then that as they see this man coming up out of the sea, walking to them, preaching a message, that this resonates with them culturally in a way that we look at and we think, that's really foreign to us. Sean. I have a problem with this map that I showed you, by the way. Go ahead. Yeah, let me go back. I don't think they did. First of all, I don't think that they saw him necessarily come up out of the sea, nor do I think that Assyria is used to seeing people come up out of the sea because we don't have 
really a sea pretty, really, really anywhere close to Assyria. If you'll look at the town here, Nineveh is here, Assyria is up here, Babylon is down here. The message of Oannes, let's say, comes from Babylon and works its way all the way up to Nineveh. So that's one thing, first of all. Second, the reason that I have a problem with this map, I pulled this map up because it, it shows nicely the two points of, of Joppa uh, heading towards Tarshish and Nineveh up here. But the, the path is one we're not sure about. It kind of presents it as though we are sure about it. It's, we're not really sure about it. We don't know the path. The other thing we don't know about this time period is what the map looked like exactly, what the seas looked like exactly. So uh, an example of this would be when the children of Israel are led out of Egypt. It says they, they cross the, the, in our Bibles it says Red Sea. It's actually in, in our Bibles the Reed Sea, okay? Where is the Reed Sea? Well, we don't know, but there is an area coming out of Egypt that is filled with reeds, right? And it's dry land now, but it is filled with reeds, and it's very obvious that there was once water there that's no longer there. So the thing that most people would say is probably the, the, the ocean, the water, extended much further into the land than what we're seeing here, in and around both the Fertile Crescent and all the way down to the Sinai Peninsula, which is down on the bottom left-hand side. So that's the, that's the other thing, is I'm not sure where he got, where he got spit out. All right? So I would say that, too. Um, did they see him walk out? I, no, I doubt it. Um, I doubt that he was, like, dropped off right into the town of Nineveh. It said he walked three days into the middle of the town. Well, the town of Nineveh, the ancient town of Nineveh, is not three days' journey across He's probably walking three days to Nineveh, I would assume. And so, um, so that's, you got to think about that too. So he's probably not dropped off on the shore, all right? But what does a man look like when he's been in the belly of a fish for three days? I, I, I think he's going to be pretty gnarly. And I'm just going to assume <laughs> that maybe one or two people said, what happened to you? <laughs> so there might be, hold on just a there might, there might be, you know, some, perhaps even some more stuff there than, than what we know, but I would say that uh, there's probably something to that, you know, that at least they know, yeah. Or it was, threat it was threatening them? Yeah, like the Aramean. I mean, if he went this route, he certainly did. You know, because he's walking right through the Aramean states in this, on this map. That if like it's more than three days. Yeah, part of the reason why they, they have this here and this like kind of dotted, dotted line, this is a pre-populated map, by the way, that I take from some software that I've got. But uh, this little uh, route that they have here, part of that is, well, where else does he get dropped off? He, if, he goes, if he goes all the way down here, he'd have to come all the way down the Horn of Africa and back up in three days. I, who knows if that's really possible. This is a natural little bridge over to um, Nineveh, so maybe. But, but that, that's, that's the point, is who knows exactly where he was dropped off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably a stinky guy, yeah. Questions? Comments, thoughts? Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there, there's a uh, there's a book that is will kind of rock, rock your missional worldview uh, if you want to read it. It's a it's a pretty modern uh, telling. It's called the Spirit of the Rainforest, 
and we had to read it in seminary. It was a, it's a missions, it's a missional book. It's a story about, uh, it's a true story about some missionaries that went down Spirit of the Rainforest, or the Spirit of the Rainforest, maybe. Um, some American missionaries that went down to the Amazon Rainforest, and they began doing missions uh, down there to tribes that had never really come in contact with mankind. The book is written technically by a shaman who was saved by those missionaries, or who was saved by the gospel preaching that came from those missionaries. And um, he tells it from his perspective as he experienced it when they came down there. And he gives a brief like background of their narrative, of their like the, the way that they grew up and the way he became a shaman and things like this. Uh, I mean, it, it's borderline spooky, all right, depending on, you know, where you come from. But um, he, he talks about talking to animals and how the, ja- the jaguar of the, is it jaguar or puma uh, of, the, of the rainforest came and spoke to him. That's how he knew he was going to be a shaman because he was a kid. He came and spoke to him. And he, he goes back to his parents and he tells them what happened. And they know he's going to be a shaman now of the tribe because the animals are talking to him. And the, the report comes to him, these demonic experiences that he's having through drug-induced trips. And um, these, these, uh, he constantly is um, talked to by various spirit beings from the rainforest. And they tell him about the enemy that lives over the mountain where there is light who comes and takes their children when they die. And you should hate this uh, this evil being that's beyond the mountain that takes your children when you die. And this, these animals, these uh, demons, would come and, and tell the, give him instruction as to what to do. If, if you're going to please us, then you need to go on these raids, you need to kill these people, you need to do this, and, um, and you know, appease us with blood of these, of these people. And so they would do this, and he would mediate this to his tribe. And when the missionaries come along, they, they tell him, no, you have, you have backwards, right? You, the, the being on the other side of the mountain is the Lord, and he is, that is, he is good. And the ones that are coming to do this are uh, bringing evil. The point that I'm making is God often uses the, the myths that are baked into a culture to bring as an avenue to bring the gospel. That's not foreign. That, that's a pretty common thing that he does on the mission field even today. Um, so the thing that I'm raising, and I think that Jonah sort of brings up in some of the historical setting of the town of Nineveh, um, it sort of brings, that, brings things that I recognize into the book of Jonah, where I look at the book not just from a historical perspective. This is a real guy, and, and there's no reason to doubt this narrative. But then also, with the stuff that we know about the cultures of Assyria and Babylon, we don't know all that Jonah said to Nineveh. Maybe there's more than is recorded there. But with all of the historical baggage that they they bring in, all the religious baggage that they bring in, it's reasonable to conclude that a man spit out on dry land from a fish might make a tremendous impact for the Lord in that community. So, you know... Maybe it's not so unbelievable that a man was spit out on dry land. Neither is it unbelievable that a man rose from the dead. Other questions? Right. Yeah. And the whole time in the book of Jonah, it tells you that. You know, that that God appointed this fish. So this is not, you know, this is a miraculous fish. (laughs) So there's that too. (laughs) Uh, But yes, yeah, Jonah wasn't going, hmm, I got a brilliant strategy, for sure. Neither did the missionaries, by the way, in Spirit of the Rainforest, get down there and think, that they're going to stumble upon the reverse gospel that's going to be very easy to just flip the other way to this culture who's, you know, lost. So, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Charles. 
Yes. 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 Pretty much. Um, at least historically, there's a lot of evidence that that was the case. And it seems as though Jonah preaching repentance to the Ninevites was basically to save them so that they could judge Israel. So that God didn't just destroy them. Because they were wicked. You know, there's also, and stuff I didn't even go into, but th there, there's a letter that we find about this time from a king of Assyria. We're not sure exactly the time, but it's a king of Assyria writing to another province in Assyria that tells them to repent. And, um, and so we have that. We're not entirely sure the setting, nor are we entirely sure about the God that's mentioned in the repentance. And so, there, but, there, but it is interesting that at least there was communication on the whole from Nineveh to the rest of the towns, which is exactly what happens in the book of Jonah. Communication to the towns, repent. Stop what you're doing and lead everybody in three days of prayer, which is, and, which is a, pretty much what happens in the town of Nineveh. That's, that's a, there's a written record of that. So, um, you know, so when we talk about the historicity of Jonah, it's, I think it's important to just take into account that it's all plausible. It's, it, it shouldn't be a difficult thing to wrap our minds around, nor should we be embarrassed by anything in the Old Testament. Nothing. There's not one verse of the Old Testament that you should be ashamed of or fearful of to defend to people that you know or to talk to. You know, the, I had a professor that used, to, that used to say, archaeology is a friend of the Bible. Everybody swears something didn't exist until they kick over a rock in Israel and they're like, well, look at that. There it is. So, let's pray and then we'll get out of here. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this time that we could come together. I pray that this is the encouragement that I hoped it would be, that, um, that as we talk with our friends, neighbors, coworkers maybe, that as questions are rising in, in our culture about the validity of Scripture, and here's all these things in the Old Testament that maybe we don't know exactly what to do with and how to explain and things like that. I pray you give us a great confidence to know that your word stands on its own, that it can withstand scrutiny and that it holds up and that time will tell uh, of your faithfulness, of what kind of truth you speak constantly, that the scriptures that we have can be trusted, they can be treasured, they can be read, they can be learned from, and they're able to correct us and to train us in righteousness. And I pray that we can have great confidence uh, standing on your word before the people that are around us. I pray you would give us that kind of boldness as we share your gospel with those in our midst. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.